Welcome you to the program, listeners. Tyler Friel with you on WISR, 680 AM, 107.5 FM. Great to have you aboard on Let's Talk. Of course, a half hour where we sit down and chat with various organizations, nonprofits, and different businesses in the areas, talking about a number of different topics. Today is one of our chats with the Independence Health System at Butler Memorial Hospital. Today, our guest is Maggie Spangola. She is with Cardiac Electrophysiology. Now that we've got the big word out of the way, Maggie, good to have you here. Welcome inside the studio. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So we're going to get into a full conversation uh, on a number of different topics here. But first, as always, we like to remind our listeners that you can listen online, WISR680.com. And if you can't stick around for the full half hour, don't worry, we have you covered as well. You can just go to WISR680.com. Look under the program's page, find Let's Talk, and you'll be able to find today's conversation with Independence Health System. Also, if you are a Spotify user, we are now on Spotify. Just search for WISR. Let's talk and you can click and subscribe and find the Independence Health System show as well. And you can also download our mobile app. Plenty of ways to listen to WISR and to Let's Talk. So now with that out of the way, Maggie, you are a nurse practitioner. Uh, Again, cardiac electrophysiology. What is that all about? (laughs) Sure. So one of the main things that we worry about in cardiac electrophysiology is heart rhythms. So anything from atrial fibrillation is one of the biggest things that we deal with. Generally, just cardiac arrhythmias kind of for the most part is what we focus on. So we're kind of the electricians of the heart, if you will. Mm, Nice. So we, I, you know, I think a lot of people, if they listen to the radio, watch TV, they hear atrial fibrillation and you know, it's a big word again. Uh, what does that exactly mean? Sure. So atrial fibrillation is one of the most common types of heart rhythm problems that we see in a lot of our patients. Generally speaking, it is a type of arrhythmia that comes from the top part of the heart that causes the heart to go rapidly and to beat irregularly. Okay. When would we know this is a problem? For a lot of patients, they experience symptoms like palpitations, feeling a rapid heart rate. Some people can get lightheadedness, dizziness, things along those lines, lots of different symptoms. And is it directly correlated to something? Is this genetics? What do we know about it? So what we know about atrial fibrillation is that it tends to increase in risk of having this diagnosis as you get older. And particularly as our patients age, they're more likely to have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation. In general, about 6 million people in the United States have atrial fibrillation. And that number is only expected to increase as our population continues to age Mm. and as uh, Uh, the population continues to grow. So as we know what this is, what are the dangers of it? Essentially, what can if we get diagnosed with this, what can happen to us? Absolutely. The biggest thing we worry about with atrial fibrillation is stroke risk. So when we have a patient who's diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, one of the most common things that we worry about is stroke. And when we talk about stroke, one of the main ways in which we try to reduce that risk is by starting patients on a medication that's typically referred to as a blood thinner. Mm, Okay. So we talk about the heart. To me, stroke goes to the mind. How are those two correlated? Absolutely. So that's a great question and a question that a lot of our patients have. And the big connection, kind of the heart-brain connection, if you will, is that there is some areas in the heart where blood tends to, with this atrial fibrillation, with this irregular heartbeat, blood tends to kind of pool and can form big clots that can break off and go to the brain Mm. and can actually cause a blockage in the brain that can then cause a stroke. So we try to get in front of that by doing blood thinners. 
obviously blood thinners, I would imagine, do what they say they do. They mm-hmm. thin our blood. What are the advantages of that? So the advantages of that are it helps to prevent those big clots from forming in the heart in areas where the blood tends to kind of pool in um, the irregular heart rhythm that we call atrial fibrillation. But sometimes when we thin the blood just in the heart, it doesn't thin the blood only there. It thins the blood from head to toe. So the biggest risk that we have with blood thinners is bleeding. Mm. And so whenever you see maybe somebody who is older, and I think I've had almost every one of my grandparents on uh, a blood thinner at one point, they are more prone to bleeding. So what happens in a situation like that? Let's say they do have an accident. What are some of the things that they need to be worried about if that does happen? Absolutely. So when we have patients who are on blood thinners, like you mentioned, the big thing we worry about is bleeding, not only from accidents, but from everyday lifestyles. Blood thinners, while they don't necessarily cause bleeding, can make bleeding much worse Mm. and can kind of create more of a problem once bleeding has started. So if a patient, let's say you do put a patient on blood thinners, Mm -hmm. what type of proactive measures can they take to make sure that if an accident does happen, that they do have the right situation at home or wherever they may be to you know, be able to treat it effectively. Absolutely. The biggest thing when we talk about preventative maintenance for bleeding is mostly to avoid the accident in the mm. first place, which is a challenge at times. Yeah. We have patients, especially in our elderly population who are at high risk for falls, people who have active lifestyles. We have seen a lot of patients who are police officers, carpenters, skiers, snowmobilers, you name it. They're at a higher risk for injury just based off of their lifestyle and their activities. I think you may have answered it then. So atrial fibrillation, there may be nothing we can do about it. I mean, is there preventive steps that we can take? So as far as prevention from atrial fibrillation, we like to make sure that we can treat sleep apnea, kind of some is probably the biggest underlying risk really? factor that we see. Yeah. So patients who are prescribed a CPAP, it's important that you're compliant and you wear that CPAP, even though it may make it difficult to sleep at times. Mm-hmm. But it is important to try to mitigate that risk as best we can. The other things that we worry about, of course, are healthy lifestyle. We try to encourage weight loss and we try to encourage healthy sleep habits. Uh, but as far as truly reducing the risk of atrial fibrillation, it is one of those things, as I'd mentioned, that tends to promote and propagate itself as we age. Just in an older population. Sleep apnea, Mm -hmm. how do we know we have it? uh, And what recourses do we take in that situation if we need to? And all of a sudden, somebody's out there, they hear this, and they'll sleep apnea and atrial fibrillation. I feel like I need to get an early attack on this. What should they be doing? Sure. The biggest, I would say, red flag for sleep apnea is snoring. So if you have a partner who's sleeping with you, your wife, your husband, who's saying, oh my gosh, you're sawing logs, <laughs> you're absolutely snoring way too much, you may have sleep apnea. That should be something. Talk to your primary doctor. Talk to them about getting a sleep study. It's one of the many services we have at Independence Health System. Um, you can get set up with a sleep study. They can appropriately titrate a machine to ensure that you're receiving effective therapy for Uh, either a CPAP or whatever device you Mm. may need in order to have assistance while you're sleeping. So I don't know if sleep studies are your realm of expertise, but what happens in a sleep study? So... Sleep studies generally, I have personal experience with sleep oh, studies, really? actually. Yes, I, <laughs> I have sleep apnea and I wear a CPAP. So during a sleep study, you'll come into the uh, sleep center 
and they'll ask you to go to sleep. And of course, that's a challenge when you're in kind it's of a foreign, yeah. absolutely, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a foreign situation. Um, you'll come in in the evening, they typically bring in and they'll attach a bunch of electrodes to your head and they'll put, uh, it's, it's really not conducive to sleeping, yeah. <laughs> but they will kind of measure your sleep, your oxygen saturation and various things during the study. Now they have actually at home sleep studies, which oh, okay. have made it a little more comfortable and a little easier to be diagnosed mm -hmm. with sleep apnea and appropriately treated. Okay, very, very good. And again, they would do this all by starting with their primary care physician would absolutely. be a good place to start. Absolutely. Again, our guest, Maggie Spengola, nurse practitioner at Independence Health System. There's also, we've talked about the medicine uh, and then, you know, the, the to be on a blood thinner, essentially. Uh, but there's also a type of procedure uh, at Butler Hospital that can be performed Let's talk a little bit about that. What should we know about this procedure? Sure. So I think the most important thing to know about this procedure is that it is a procedure that helps patients get off of their blood thinner safely when they have a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation while still keeping them safe from stroke. Mm. So these procedures, there are two procedures that are very, very similar. We utilize the Watchman procedure as well as the Amulet procedure, two procedures, both of which are done at the Butler Memorial Hospital campus of Independence Health System to help to reduce stroke risk while keeping patients safe from bleeding risks with uh, avoiding having to be on a blood thinner. So how do you determine somebody who is a candidate for a bleeding risk? Is this just an older population? What evaluation are you guys doing? Sure. There? We look at a lot of different things. We look not only at age, which does tend to have some predisposing factors to bleeding risk. Mm -hmm. We also look at other medications that patients are on if they're on other medicines like an aspirin, antiplatelet medicines that may increase their risk for bleeding in conjunction with being on a more traditional blood thinner like Xarelto or Eliquis, things along those lines. We look at kidney function, we look at liver function, and then we most importantly talk to the patients, get a better sense of what kind of problems have they had. Have they had multiple nosebleeds? Are they at risk for falls? Are they on medication? that make them more likely to bleed, like non-steroidal medicines like uh, Celebrex or ibuprofen, Motrin, things along those lines. Those are kind of the biggest things that we look at. So when you're determining if somebody is eligible, obviously we mentioned a lot of the things there. Is there any other eligibility requirements people need to meet in order to get one of these procedures done? Sure. I would say, number one, the absolute bottom line criteria is these patients need to be on a blood thinner for atrial fibrillation. Okay. This procedure is excellent at treating blood clots that form due to atrial fibrillation. While patients can be started on blood thinners for other reasons, for blood clots in different places, for example, in a blood clot in the leg, a blood clot in the lung, this procedure really doesn't target getting off of a blood thinner that's been started for those sorts of reasons. So let's get into the nitty gritty. Let's sure. talk about... So are the the Watchman device and the amulet device, these are two separate things? Two separate, but created very, very similarly. Okay. Devices that really serve a very similar purpose. Okay, so let's talk about the Watchman. Sure. Guessing this is not something we have on our wrist. So what is the Watchman device? So the Watchman device is a device that kind of looks like a little parachute. It is a device that goes into an area of the heart called the left atrial appendage. The left atrial appendage... Let me back up. The heart has four chambers. There's okay. two on the top, two on the bottom. I feel like we need a map in here. I do so think we need a, a map. Give me a, a chart map. and diagnosis. But anyway. <laughs> so with that being said, there's two chambers on the top, two chambers on the bottom. 
And off the top left chamber of the heart is a little windsock looking thing, kind of like the appendix that's in your belly, but this is connected to the heart. And in that area, the blood tends to kind of move slower. It tends to swirl. It tends to kind of have a lot of opportunity for big clots to form in atrial fibrillation. And when the clots form in that area, they then can be dislodged, go to the brain, and they can cause blockage that can cause a stroke. So what the watchman device or the amulet device, both of these devices do, is they block off that left atrial appendage to remove it from circulation so that the clots can't get out and go to the brain. So it completely just knocks one out, basically. Essentially. What's the difference between the two? What what would make one more useful for a candidate? What would make one, you know, why would you lean one or the other? Sure. So generally speaking, the devices are very similar. They're both excellent devices. They're both commonly used. They're both something that we use in our practice very frequently. There are some screening criteria that we do uh, as far as pre-procedurally to determine what sort of shape your specific anatomy of your heart has to ensure that we pick the best device that would be the most conducive to fitting in that little windsock, that left atrial appendage that we talked about to make sure that it fits perfectly when we leave it behind. So it's more so just dependent on the patient as opposed to a certain type of condition or something like that. Absolutely. So when we're talking about the procedure itself, Let's say we talk with our primary care doctor, we consult uh, with you and uh, the staff there. What do we need to know? How long is this procedure going to take? What is the the recovery time? What's everything like that uh, in that situation? Absolutely. So when we do the procedure itself, there's a little legwork that's involved in getting us up and running ready to have the procedure. One of the most common things that we do beforehand is one of two tests, either a CT scan that's specialized to look at the anatomy of the heart or what we call a transesophageal echocardiogram, which is a down-the-throat ultrasound of the heart. In order to do that test, we sedate you, and we take some pictures to make sure, as I'd mentioned, that your anatomy is perfect for whichever device is most conducive to what's going to be best for what the are the? How do you guys determine which one to do? CT scan or the big phrase that you said earlier? <laughs> Absolutely. When we decide between the transesophageal echo, which is the down the throat ultrasound test, versus the CT scan, the biggest determining factor is twofold. One is, does the patient have a dye allergy? Because we do need to use dye for the CT scan, so we don't want to expose someone who has a dye allergy mm. to that CT scan dye if we can help it. And secondarily, we want to make sure that the patient doesn't have any kidney function because the dye can be very hard on kidney dysfunction, excuse me. The dye can be very challenging to Mm. be processed by the kidneys. So it's more so the dye aspect of it. And then if primarily you go into Mm -hmm. the other realm. So we get that procedure done. You guys get the information you need to know. You make the suggestion to get either device in. What are the next steps after that? Next steps is the patient comes in for procedure day. Typically, we'll bring them in in the morning or early afternoon. We take a look over everything, make sure everything looks smooth and ready to go on the day of, bring you back into the procedural suite, which is at the Butler Memorial Hospital on the second floor. So all these operations can be done locally right here in Butler. Absolutely. Mm. And when we do that, the procedure itself takes just under an hour typically It's a general anesthesia procedure, so you're fully asleep for the whole procedure. When we wake you back up, you have some new hardware, shouldn't feel any different. It's a one-time procedure, not something that needs to be replaced or redone. Yeah, and so for people who have had this procedure, Mm -hmm. 
when you talk to them, when you meet with them, what's life like after? Absolutely. So the most important and exciting part of this procedure is being able to tell patients they don't need to take their blood thinner anymore. Mm. So typically what happens after we put the device in, we allow for a period of about 45 days for the device to fully heal and for what we call endothelialization or tissue growth over that device to occur. Once that has occurred, we'll do one more down the throat ultrasound test to make sure everything's sealed off, looks good, no clots, no problems. And then from there, we're typically able to take the patients off the blood thinner the same day. And it's really an exciting moment for everyone involved. For it's, it sounds like it. And does it give a lot of the individuals confidence that they can obviously get off the blood thinning medication? So you can kind of take out some of those instances where we talked about potential fall victims. I'm sure they're a little bit more excited to go back and feel more confident in doing a lot of their activities. Absolutely. So for patients who have the high fall risk, it really does renew a sense of confidence, especially for patients who may live alone, who are in a situation where they don't readily have access to help if they do have a fall or at high risk for injury. And also for some of our patients who are active lifestyles, I have a lovely patient who is a very active snowmobiler, and mm. he is after his procedure, he was very excited to get back on the snowmobile. <laughs> no recurrent problems with bleeding due to being on a blood thinner. He was absolutely ecstatic. And, you know, we, we talked about atrial fibrillation being more targeted in an older demographic. You don't have to get specific, but, I mean, in some of the younger cases, what typical age are we talking about here where something like this may pop up? Sure. I would say that atrial fibrillation predisposes itself to be for more of a older population, but there are certainly younger patients who have this as well. Um, we have many patients who are in their 40s, even 30s, really? who have been diagnosed with atrial fibrillation. As soon as we're diagnosed with atrial fibrillation, the general kind of gold standard of therapy is to really start a blood thinner to keep those patients safe from stroke. Mm -hmm. If there's any inclination that they're going to have a difficult time challenging it, if they've had any history of bleeds before, any history of falls, active lifestyle, any of the things that we've mentioned, we have a low threshold to consider a procedure. And that's what I was going to ask. So if you do have a younger population and you start the blood thinning medication, is that for most people still going to be okay? Is, you know, if a 30, 40 year old was on a blood thinner, is that, uh, are they at much risk and would have to lean more toward this because maybe they are a little bit more of an active lifestyle? Sure. I think for many people, it's nice to have options. Mm. Not necessarily that we are concerned that they're going to have the same level of devastating bleed from a fall or something along those lines. But for many patients of that age, they're very active. And I agree that they are at higher risk for injury. Okay. But again, case-by-case -case basis. Certainly. Maggie Spangola, our guest, nurse practitioner at Independence Health System, Butler Memorial Hospital. Uh, for uh, the hospital itself, uh, maybe I'm throwing a number out here that you don't have in front of you, but these types of procedures, these types of devices, do you know how many of these procedures you guys are doing on a yearly basis? Absolutely. I would say that COVID kind of changed some things for us, mm -hmm. and we certainly had it's been a strange couple of years. Really? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but all things considered, over the past couple of years, we've done about 170 cases. Okay. All of our patients overall have done very well for the most part. Mm -hmm. And we continue to do these cases on a regular basis. We typically do them once or twice a month. Mm. How new is this technology? So the Watchman technology came out first 
before the amulet. Watchman has been approved by the FDA for several years now. It was approved in 2015, I believe. Okay. And it was approved in Europe prior to being approved here by the FDA. I think Watchman, they've implanted, I want to say, 300,000 patients in oh, this well. country. So It's been some but still, that's a relative. I mean, when you're talking medical, that's relatively new. Whenever this came out uh, and you were talking with people at the hospital, how excited well, were folks that this was going to be an option for them? I think everyone was really excited, mostly because we all know someone who is on a blood thinner. We all have parents, friends, grandparents, relatives who are on these drugs. And not only are they at high risk, the medications tend to run very expensive, hundreds of dollars a month. And just like I had mentioned, to really have an option mm -hmm. for these patients who heretofore have really been kind of destined to be on this therapy for years is a little bit of a breath of fresh air. So when they get the watchman, they get the amulet, any medication that they'll need, or are they, is this device really going to do the work on its own? The device does the work on its own, but there is a little bit of a runtime. So with that being said, as I'd mentioned, there's typically six weeks or 45 days where they stay on the blood thinner okay. in order to allow the device to kind of heal in. After that, patients typically go on a regimen of antiplatelet medicine. Some, may, some patients may have taken this medicine called Plavix for a stent in the past. Okay. They stay on that for six months from the time of implant. After that, it's a baby aspirin lifelong. So cardiac electrophysiology, again, your specialty, uh, what led you to get into this line of medicine as a nurse practitioner? Absolutely. I would say I've always really been fascinated by medicine. There's a lot of medical background in my family, but specifically cardiac. Cardiac was always kind of an Everest for me. I would say that just the sense of it being such a broad category of disease states and diagnoses and things to learn between all of the different diagnostic tests that are utilized, all the conditions we see patients come in with, cardiology has always really attracted me. So when I first was looking for a job out of nurse practitioner school, I gravitated towards cardiology and really was very interested in finding a position there. So I worked with cardiology at the Butler Health System at Butler Memorial Hospital for five years. And then a position became open in electrophysiology. And to this point, I'd really developed an interest in cardiac arrhythmias, specifically atrial fibrillation, mm. just because it's such a widespread diagnosis. It's such a common problem. We all know patients who have this diagnosis, and it can really be detrimental to patients' life. Symptoms run, as we kind of talked about, very broad gauntlet, wide gamut. A lot of people feel miserable with AFib, and if we have a chance to make somebody feel better, I think it's a really exciting opportunity to have for these patients to allow us to take care of them. Is this some of the technology that excites you about where potential medicine, potential procedures are going whenever it comes to heart care? Absolutely. To see where we were even five, ten years ago, the wild rate that things have grown and just the developments that have occurred in recent years is wild to see what's changed, to see how much better we're doing and how many more offerings we really have for patients who before had kind of some limited choices. Do you think individuals are becoming more cognizant of heart health 
than we were in years past? Absolutely. I definitely agree from a lot of different things, whether it's the increase of ads on the internet or on TV, even when we see these things becoming more prevalent in our own communities and with our neighbors, with our friends, we see people with these sorts of diagnoses and we get a better sense of kind of how common this is. So give me Maggie Spingola's top three tips for heart health. Top three tips for heart health. That's, that's a broad category. Let me tell you what. Um, I would say that one of the most important things is we talked a little bit about sleep apnea. I think treating your sleep apnea in the context of atrial fibrillation is incredibly important. I would say, of course, maintaining a healthy diet is one thing that we all talk about. Mm -hmm. And I would also say that routine follow-up with your primary care and with, if you have a cardiologist, truly following with that person and making sure that we're on board and we're all on the same page. And if there's any updates, if there's any change in your condition, being proactive about letting your provider know. And nobody is a huge fan of going to the doctor, <laughs> coming into the hospital, and nobody wants to do that. But I think our goal as providers in conjunction with our goal for our patients is really to keep everyone as healthy and out of the hospital and to really maintain the best sense of well-being we can for our patients as we you possible. mentioned you, you mentioned sleep apnea and we, we talked about <laughs> a little bit of, uh, before not that there's a number out there but do you feel like there's a certain undiagnosed population that just doesn't even know they have sleep apnea and the dangers that it could present to their health? Absolutely. I think a lot of patients, especially patients who are not co-sleepers, they don't have anyone who's listening to them snore at night, mm -hmm. really can sometimes be unaware of the fact that they do have sleep apnea. They can be uninformed of that fact. And I also think that some of the hallmark symptoms of this are daytime sleepiness, feeling that you just woke up from a long night's sleep and you're not well rested. Some of those things are kind of red flags for sleep apnea as well. Maggie Spingola, our guest, a nurse practitioner at Independence Health System. So we talked a little bit about this. If patients are wondering, am I eligible for this procedure? How do I learn more? What are the steps that they need to take? So contacting us is probably the first line to get in touch with the clinic. We do have a specific clinic to discuss exactly what we're here to talk about today, the amulet procedure, the watchman procedure. We treat our atrial fibrillation patients through that clinic. The best way to get in touch with us is either to check out our website at butlerhealthsystem.org slash cardiology, or to give our clinic a call at 724-968-5937. You can ask for Maggie. I'm always happy to see any of our patients at any time. The staff will get a message and we'll be more than happy to schedule any patients who may be interested to come and talk with our team. How would you describe the team that you work with uh, at Independence Health System specifically in this department? Sure. We have a unique setup, I will say. I've worked with a lot of people who coordinate these procedures across the country. And I will say that Independence Health definitely has a unique and I feel very beneficial kind of setup. We have myself as a nurse practitioner. I coordinate the clinic in conjunction with my nurse, Kara, who does an amazing job. And then we also have several physicians who collaborate to provide care for our patients and who actually do the procedure. We have three 
three providers who two interventional cardiologists and a electrophysiologist who all worked together to perform the procedures, Dr. Carey, Dr. Avula, and Dr. Cavagna. And then we have an imaging specialist, Dr. Flores, as well as our great anesthesiology team who all work together on the day of the procedure to make sure that the patients not only are doing well with their implant, but get the best imaging and the best anesthesia care. And one more time, Maggie, if you could just give that contact information. Absolutely. Our website is butlerhealthsystem.org backslash cardiology. And our phone number is 724-968-5937. Maggie Spingola, nurse practitioner at Independence Health System and at Butler Memorial Hospital. Thank you so much for stopping by, Maggie. Thanks for having me. If you missed any of our program, you can check it out online, WISR680.com is the place to take care of that. I'm Taylor Frill saying so long for now.